Well, it's always a, a privilege and an honor to teach the Word of God. And uh, I hope and pray that you will be encouraged by the Word of God today. And so, um, when I was a senior in college, I lived in a house with four other guys. And as you might imagine, some interesting things happened that year with five of us living in the house together. And uh, one of those events that just really stands out to me happened one night. It was later in the evening. Uh, we were all about to go to bed. And uh, I heard one of the loudest screams I've ever heard coming from one of the bedrooms. And so, of course, uh, we all ran to that bedroom. And, and, and there in that room was one of my roommates. And he was just simply standing there pointing at the wall. And so we walk in, we're like, what's going on? And we turn and look at the wall, and about halfway up the wall was the absolute largest spider I have ever seen in my life, outside of like a cage or like a tank or anything. I mean, this thing was huge. It had to have been at least like, you know, well, okay, maybe more like this big. I mean, it was, it was a giant spider, and it wasn't so much the circumference of the spider that was so mind-boggling. What was really unusual about it was just the abdomen of the spider was just so fat and so thick. And we all uh, saw the spider and started screaming as well. And then we calmed down a little bit and tried to figure out what to do next. And so uh, we decided... Um, that it was time for us to exercise our manly dominion over this spider, all right? And we were going to capture it and make him like our house pet or mascot. And so, really, I wanted nothing to do with it because I have a healthy fear and respect of spiders, all right? So I kind of stayed back. Um, but one of my roommates went to the kitchen, and he got this clear plastic Tupperware container. And uh, he came back in, and one detail I failed to mention is uh, that one of my roommate's bed uh, just happened to be up against that wall where the spider was climbing up. And so his plan was he was going to kind of get up on the bed, and he was going to take his plastic Tupperware dish, and he was going to kind of smash it against the wall and trap the spider in there, hoping that the spider would then kind of crawl down into it. We'd put the lid in it, and there you go. We would capture our, our, our mascot. And so that was the plan. We all thought it was a good idea. And uh, he's ready to roll. Um, his adrenaline's flowing. His energy's up. And what he didn't realize is when he slammed that Tupperware dish across uh, to the wall, man, he moved it so fast and slammed it so hard that it actually bounced off the wall. All right? And so when it bounced off the wall, that spider fell down onto my friend's bed. And what happened next absolutely blew my mind, all right? When the spider fell off of the wall and fell onto the bed, it exploded into like 150 other spiders, all right? Yes. It was a mother spider... And it had like hundreds of baby spiders crawling all over its abdomen, which is why it made it look so fat, right? And when it hit the bed, man, those baby spiders just jumped, fell off, and started running all around his bed like crazy. And it was like this gasp came across. We were all like, oh! <laughs> like, what just happened? And so my friend that had the plastic Tupperware dish, he missed once, but he wasn't going to miss again. He was the first to jump to action, and he had his, his dish, and he, he jumped over on the bed, and he trapped the mother spider in the dish. It still had a bunch of the babies just crawling all over it. So we put the, the lid on it, and we had uh, our, our house mascot, and it was captured. Now, here's probably the craziest thing about this story, all right? My roommate... Um, who slept in that bed. Um, he did not even take the sheets off of his bed that night. And he slept in that bed where all those baby spiders had been crawling all over the place. I mean, I didn't even want to sleep in my bed that night. You know what I'm saying? And it's like in a completely another room. 
But my friend, this roommate of mine, man, he just had no fear of spiders at all. I'm not sure if he's human, actually. And so, um, he had no fear of spiders at all. And what we're going to see from the Word of God today is, man, there are much greater things than spiders that we need not fear at all because of Jesus Christ. And so, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can just throw your hand up in the air and uh, Usher will get one to you and pass it down the row. Matthew 14. And uh, what we'll see as we dive into Matthew 14 some is uh, there are two parallel passages that share the same story that are found in Mark 6 and John 6 as well. And so uh, to pull some extra details into the story, uh, I will on occasion refer to Mark 6 and to John 6 as well. And so uh, as we dive into the passage, uh, we see our first point, uh, which is that we need not be afraid. We do not need to be afraid because Jesus is the almighty son of God. Jesus is the almighty son of God. Look with me in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. This is what it says. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Well, why did he make the disciples get into the boat to go to the other side? And why did he dismiss the crowds? Um, Those are good questions. And before we dive into the passage, we need to get some context uh, to kind of gain a better understanding of what's happening in Matthew in this point and what's happened leading up to this point, maybe even in Matthew chapter 14, to help us answer these questions and gain a deeper understanding of the passage we're going to be looking at today. And so in Matthew chapter 14, at this point for the disciples, um, they've not really quite yet figured out who Jesus was. All right. Um, Now, the father declared that Jesus was the son of God when Jesus was baptized. And the demons had stated that Jesus was the son of God up to this point. But the disciples had not yet made that declaration that Jesus was the son of God here up to this point in Matthew chapter 14. Now, they've been traveling with him for for two years at this point, and they'd seen him do some incredible things. I mean, they'd seen him heal people. Uh, They'd seen him cast out demons. Uh, They had seen him raise a dead man uh, back to life. And so they had seen him do some incredible things, and there's no doubt that they were in awe of those things and in awe of him. But they also just continually saw Jesus hated and rejected and despised, and treated with uh, animosity, and treated with bitterness. And even the religious leaders of the day, um, they accused Jesus of being from Satan, and they wanted him dead. And so they saw him do some incredible things, but still they were confused and left with some questions. And this very same thing happens even in Matthew 14 itself before this passage that we're about to jump into. Uh, At the beginning of Matthew uh, chapter 14, we see John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one who so boldly and confidently proclaimed that this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world. He so boldly and confidently proclaimed it. But then we see not too long after that, Um, John begins to question, and John begins to doubt. And he even sends word to Jesus um, to ask him, are you the one, the Messiah, or should we wait for someone else? And then in the beginning of Matthew 14, uh, we see that John the Baptist, he is uh, killed. He is beheaded by Herod. And the disciples find out about this, and they're confused And they're left in fear. But man, then right after that, um, immediately following that in Matthew chapter 14, we see Jesus perform what is probably his largest scale miracle of all. And he takes a few fish 
And he takes a few loaves of bread and miraculously uh, he, he takes them and feeds somewhere probably around 20,000 people when you include the women and the children with the men as well. And so there's no doubt the, the disciples, man, they were left astounded by that miracle. Um, and the people were absolutely astounded as well. And we see from John chapter 6, this is the height of popularity for Jesus uh, on his time uh, on earth. And we see that the people in John chapter 6, man, they try to take Jesus and they try to make him uh, their earthly king. But Jesus didn't come to establish a shallow, uh, temporary, earthly kingdom that sought only to fill men's stomachs. Uh, Jesus came uh, to, uh, to build an eternal, uh, everlasting, spiritual kingdom that would fill men's hearts. And so, in that moment, Jesus, with his authority, he dismisses the crowds. He sends them away so that they're not able to try to make him king. And he takes the disciples and he, he tells them to get into the boat and go to the other side. And he's wanting the disciples to have uh, maybe a few moments to reflect upon what they just saw and the miracle that just happened. But at the same time, he was no doubt setting up for them um, an opportunity for them to see uh, once and for all that he truly is the Son of God and that they have nothing to fear at all. And so... Uh, as we jump back into the passage in verse 22 and kind of pick up right there, um, what we see Jesus giving to the 12 disciples and, and giving to us as well are four reasons not to be afraid. Four reasons not to be afraid. So I encourage you to uh, maybe jot that down as a title and track through these four reasons that Jesus gives us in this passage not to be afraid. So, Look back to verse 22 with me, and we'll get rolling here. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before them, uh, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And so, uh, Jesus is sending the disciples in a boat and sending them to the other side of the lake. At this point, they're on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we see again from John chapter 6 that they are uh, heading across the northern side of the lake, uh, heading to Capernaum. And there's no doubt um, that this was a trip uh, that disciples had made many times before, approximately somewhere around a six-hour trip. And uh, this time the disciples did not want to go. And we see that really clearly from the text, right? It says that Jesus made them get in the boat and go to the other side. So why didn't Jesus, or why didn't the disciples want to get in the boat and go to the other side? Well, I think probably for at least three reasons uh, we can uh, kind of uh, guess why they don't want to go to the other side. One is just simply because they don't want to leave Jesus behind. Um, Jesus is their uh, beloved leader. Uh, They love him. They want to be with him. And they don't want to leave him behind. Um, Probably a second reason they didn't want to get in the boat and go to the other side is because they didn't want to leave just all the excitement and kind of hoopla that had just taken place uh, surrounding this this miracle. Um, And they didn't want to leave that. And and, and honestly, uh, they wanted an earthly kingdom for Jesus to be established so they could even reap the benefits of it. And so they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to get in the boat and go to the other side. And then very likely, the third reason that they didn't want to get in the boat and and go to the other side of the lake is because uh, they, they probably saw that a storm was brewing. They probably saw that a storm was brewing. But Jesus, again with his authority, tells them to get in the boat and go to the other side, and they obey. And so, um, where is Jesus? Uh, Where does Jesus go when they get in the boat and go to the other side? Well, look to verse 23 with me. This is what it says. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Um, This was a familiar place for Jesus to be in the presence of his Father. And oftentimes, in the evenings, he would remove himself from the crowds, and he would remove himself even from his disciples to be with his heavenly Father, to find rest for his soul, and to have that sweet communion and fellowship with his heavenly Father. And probably the most simple Yet profound point 
that maybe we could get from this whole entire passage is this. It is, man, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? How much more do we need to pray? I don't think uh, that can honestly be overstated. And so, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And what happens to the disciples? Uh, Look back in verse 23 with me and continue on in 24 here. It says, When evening came, he was there alone, he being Jesus. When evening came, Jesus was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so it says, um, when evening came, when evening came, and we know um, from this word in the original language that this is somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m., okay? Uh, Somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. when evening came, the disciples, uh, they were still out in the boat. They were still paddling. And we see from the rest of the verse uh, that they were were fighting a storm. And we see from the text, it says uh, that they were a long way from the land at this point. And again, if we refer back to John's, uh, John's gospel in John chapter 6 to get a little more detail, he says that they're somewhere between 25 and 30 stadia from the land, which equals somewhere between uh, 3 and 4 miles. And so uh, the disciples um, are in the middle of the lake. They're 3 or 4 miles from the land. And what we get from the next verse, which we'll look at here in a second, in verse 25, um, we see that hours pass as they're fighting the storm. And it gets to somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., okay? And so the disciples now have been out in the boat, paddling, rowing, fighting this storm for somewhere around nine hours. And the text says um, that they were beaten by the waves. They were beaten by the waves. And the word beaten there can be translated um, tormented, and it can be translated torture. And so the, we see that the disciples, as, as they're paddling and rowing for nine hours in the midst of the storm, man, they are in great distress. And they are no doubt uh, in great fear. And we see from John's account, um, John says that the sea is rough and that the wind is fierce. And in Mark's account, he says uh, that they are under great distress. And he says that they are painfully making their way forward. And so... Um, the night was dark, and the sea was angry, and the storm was fierce, and there's no doubt the disciples were afraid. But worst of all, Jesus was not with them. He was not with them. And uh, I have to think that somewhere in those nine hours, after Jesus made them get into the boat to go to the other side of the lake, somewhere in those nine hours of rowing in the midst of this crazy storm, that they had to think, Jesus, where are you? Why would you allow us to go into the storm? Jesus, don't you care about us? Jesus, don't you know what's happening to us? Jesus, have you forgotten us? And if we're real honest, um, myself included, uh, as we go through storms at times, um, we may begin to ask those same questions as well. Um, Jesus, where are you? Why would you allow this to happen? Um, Don't you know what I'm going through? Have you forgotten about me? But the reality is he has not forgotten about them. He knows exactly where they are and he knows exactly what they're going through. And we see from Mark chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 48, it says that Jesus saw them. Jesus saw them as they were struggling. He saw them as they were struggling. And where was Jesus when he saw them as they were struggling? He was on the mountain. And what was he doing as he saw them struggling? He was praying. And I have absolutely no doubt that as he was on the mountain, and as he was praying, and as he saw the disciples struggling, he prayed for them and lifted them up to the Father. And so, the first reason we need not be afraid 
is because Jesus is continually praying for us and lifting us up to the Father. He's continually praying for us and lifting us up to the Father. And what a beautiful picture of the high priestly intercessory work of Christ as his disciples are down below on the boat, struggling with the storm, being beaten by the waves in fear and afraid for their lives. Jesus was up on the mountain. He was up on the mountain um, calmly and quietly in the presence of the Father on their behalf. And even though for the disciples, man, they, they, they thought probably things were completely out of control. Jesus was lifting them up to the Father. And so they were secure. And so, um, just question for you this morning. Um, are you feeling beaten by the waves of life? Uh, are you battling a storm? Are you feeling maybe uh, forgotten by God? Man, know this. Jesus Christ is lifting you up to the Father. He is praying for you on your behalf. So you have no reason to be afraid. No reason. And then we see uh, a second reason in the passage that we need not be afraid. And that is um, that Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows all things. Therefore, we need not be afraid. He knows all things. Um, Look back with me here to uh, verse 24, uh, 25 actually. It says, and in the fourth watch of the night, so it says fourth watch, so again we know it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. It came to them. And so um, it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., And the disciples have been paddling and fighting for hours. They're being tormented and they're being beaten by the storm and by the waves. And it simply says that he came to them. Now, it was a dark night and the storm was obviously raging. So there is no way that Jesus could have stood on the shore and seen the disciples out on the sea in the storm three to four miles into the lake. There's no way. It would have been impossible for him to see it. But the distance and the barrier uh, of, of darkness, um, there were no barriers for the omniscient, uh, divine knowledge of the Son of God. See, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows absolutely everything. And so he knows exactly where they are. And he knows how to get to them. And he knows exactly what they need. And the same would be true for you and I as well today. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what circumstances you are going through right now. He knows exactly what you need. And he knows exactly how to get to you. And we see from Psalm 139 um, that he has known everything about you from the time that you are in your mother's womb. We see that he knows when you sit and when you rise. He knows when you lay down and when you rise up. And he tells the disciples, Jesus tells the disciples that that he knows uh, every hair on your head. All right? For some of us, that's less than others. All right? What's up? (laughs) But that is a number that is constantly changing. And so he makes the effort to continually count day by day, moment by moment. That's how intimately he knows you and how intimately he knows everything about you. And we see Jesus also tells the disciples um, that he knows every time a sparrow falls. And the word falls here uh, does not mean dies, actually. It actually means hops, okay? And so uh, he even knows every single time that a sparrow hops. He knows that. And so Jesus tells the disciples, you are worth more than many sparrows. Do not fear. Jesus knows all things. He knows all things, so we need not fear. He knows the storm that you're going through right now. Um, He knows where your boat is, and he knows exactly what you need. So do not fear. And thirdly, not only does he know all things, 
But he can do all things as well. He can do all things as well. And so because he can do all things, we have no reason to fear. Look back at verse 25 with me. It says, And in the fourth watch of the night, uh, he came to them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Um, I love how, uh, just how simply Matthew puts this. It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, all he says is, uh, in, in the evening he came to them walking on the sea. And it's interesting uh, how he says that and, and how simple it is. And he almost makes it sound like it's something that's just common, you know, and that just uh, is, is easy to do. But don't, don't, miss the, don't miss the power and the simplicity of the statement, all right? Don't miss the power and the simplicity of the statement. See, because for Jesus, the Almighty Son of God, it was simple for him to walk on the sea. For the one who created the sea and created all things out of nothing, he can choose to walk on the sea anytime he wants. And it was simple for Jesus. He can do all things. And so as simple and as easy as it was for Jesus to walk on the sea, um, man, at the same time, we need to be absolutely astounded by his ability to do this and to do all things. But unfortunately, I think um, for a lot of us, we've kind of lost our awe of Jesus's ability to do all things. And, and I think for a lot of us, um, man, Jesus has kind of become like our cell phones. All right? That's not where you thought I was going with that, was it? Okay? Our cell phones. I mean, most of us have these things, right? And uh, I don't know if, if you have ever just paused and taken the time to think about uh, how incredible these things are and how powerful these things are. I mean, all it is is, is a piece, uh, pieces of metal and, and pieces of plastic and pieces of glass. But incredibly, I can push a few buttons on here that aren't even buttons, right? So I can push a few buttons on here and I can uh, instantly get connected to my wife's parents who are missionaries in Singapore halfway across the world. And her father can answer the phone and say hello. And the instant that he says hello, I hear him halfway across the world. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it just blows my mind. Or uh, another example, like this week... um, The World Cup is going on down in Brazil, these soccer games, and and I can watch uh, these soccer games on my phone. In the moment, in the instant that a player scores a goal, I can see it at the exact same time on my phone while it's taking place in a different hemisphere. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Or another example would be um, that just kind of blows my mind and honestly kind of scares me a little bit, if, if I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this past week, my wife and I, uh, we took our kids on a little hike behind, a, behind our house. There's, there's a little creek, and, and so we took them on a hike back there. And uh, we were going for a while, and we were wondering how far our destination was. And so we thought, well, we could try it, I guess. And so we get out our phone, and we, we go to the GPS, and, and it, it punches in exactly where we are. And the crazy thing is, it shows exactly where we are um, in a creek on this map. I mean, that's crazy. How in the world does it know that there is a creek behind my house, and that I am there, and where we are? And doesn't that just blow you away? And it's insane. It's crazy. Now, most of us, most of y'all aren't, aren't crazy like me and don't think about these things, right? And so, um, so maybe you're not uh, in awe uh, of your cell phone and, and the power of it. But as I said, man, unfortunately, I think for a lot of us, um, Jesus has become like our cell phones. And uh, we've had Jesus for quite a while now. Maybe you grew up in the church and maybe you've heard these stories most of your life, and you've heard them over and over and over again. And as a result of that, man, you've, you've just kind of lost your awe of Jesus' power and his ability to do all things. And so can I just urge you, can I urge you this morning, men and women, uh, to not lose your awe of Jesus' ability to do all things? And, and, and maybe could you, uh, maybe could you just for the very, uh, act like for the very first time today that you're hearing these things and be in awe of Jesus. Um, 
Because I'm not sure if you know or not, but Jesus, Jesus, he restored sight to a blind man. A man that had never seen light or anything his entire life. Jesus healed him and he could see perfectly. Isn't that crazy? And Jesus, he healed a man with leprosy. And Jesus went up to a man who was paralyzed, uh, who hadn't walked for years, maybe his whole entire life. And Jesus healed him. And that man who hadn't walked in years got up and ran and, and jumped and danced and went to his father. Jesus healed a paralytic. And Jesus Christ brought a dead man back to life. This man, Lazarus, he had been dead in the grave for three days. The King James Version said, he stinketh, all right? He had been dead and in the grave for three days. And Jesus walks up to the grave and with the power of his voice, the same way that he created life, simply by speaking, he uses his voice and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and he brings this dead man back to life. With the power of his voice. Incredible. And Jesus can walk on water. He walked on water. And Jesus calmed a storm. And regardless of what storm you're going through right now. Jesus can walk on the water to you. And he can calm the storm in your heart. And in the fear and the worry that you have. Jesus can do all things. He can do all things so you need not fear and you need not worry. And then fourth and lastly, fourth reason we see from this passage of why we need not fear is because of his divine care and protection for us. It's because of his divine care and protection for us. Look at me. Uh, look, look with me at verse 26. This is what it says. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so at first, when the disciples see Jesus Man, it doesn't calm their fears. It increases their fears, right? And so here they are. They've been rowing and paddling and fighting the storm for nine hours. And there's no doubt that they're weary and that they're panicked and that they're afraid. And then here comes this person or thing or something walking on the sea. And they see it and they just freak out. It just puts them over the top. And the text says that they're terrified and that that they call out, it's a ghost, and the word ghost here uh, can be translated uh, phantom or, or apparition. And uh, many commentators think that when the disciples saw uh, this thing that was actually Jesus, that they believed that it was an evil spirit that was coming to harm them. All right? But Jesus very quickly um, calms their fears. And he provides that divine care. And he provides that divine protection And he simply says to them, take heart, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it means be of good cheer, it means uh, be encouraged, it means do not be afraid, do not fear. Why? Jesus says, because I am here. Do not be afraid, it is I. And see, uh, Jesus provides us with the divine care and protection that we need uh, in the midst of the storm. And because of his promise to provide that divine care and protection uh, for us, uh, we need not fear absolutely anything in this life at all. We need not have no anxiety about absolutely anything because Jesus has promised that he will care for and provide and protect divinely uh, for his children. And so we see this promise again all throughout Scripture over and over again. Uh, this divine care and this divine protection uh, of the Father. In Psalm 5:11, the psalmist says, But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. Why? Because you defend them. 
He defends us. Psalm 9.9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. He's our refuge. He will protect us. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He's our strength. He will protect us and care for us. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He is with us. So we need not fear any evil. And then Psalm 62, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Jesus is our divine caretaker and provider and protector. And because he is, we need not be afraid. And so, regardless of what storm you're going through, regardless of how severe the stress and the worry and the fear is, you need not be afraid. You just simply need to remember that Jesus is praying for you on your behalf. He knows all things. He knows what you're going through. He can do all things. He can meet your needs. And he has promised to protect you and care for you. So regardless of how hopeless your situation may be, trust in the promises of God and who he is. Um. My wife and I uh, went through kind of a, a lengthy storm recently that has kind of just come to a conclusion. And uh, it's a storm that went on for, for several years. And uh, uh, as, as it was just simply, um, which has been easy for a lot of y'all, I'm sure, but it's just simply for us to find a home, all right? A permanent home. And uh, we have lived in six houses in the last six years. All right, we've been a part of selling five of those six houses, and uh, most of those circumstances were largely out of our control. And uh, man, at times uh, during that, it looked hopeless, and, and fear would maybe start to rise up within us. And we would try to remind and encourage one another that the Lord knew, and that He was in control, and that He had a plan. And uh, a lot of the craziness really started four years ago when we moved here from Louisville, Kentucky uh, to join the staff here at Harvest Bible Chapel. And uh, when we moved here, uh, we had a two-year-old. We had twins that had just uh, been born about a month before that. So life was a little crazy already. Uh, we have two big hairy dogs and my wife's parents were also staying with us at the time. As I said, they were missionaries. And so we moved back here into this uh, little rental house just for a few months to try to give us some time uh, to find something more permanent. And in those few months, in that short lease that we had signed, uh, we tried to buy three different houses. All right? Three different houses. And each and every time, uh, something fell through, and it fell apart, and it didn't happen. And the deadline of our, our lease was coming up, and our, our, our landlord decided uh, that she was going to sell the home. And so we knew that we had to be out. And so this deadline was pressing upon us. And, uh, man, I got to tell you, we, we didn't know. And it kind of seemed hopeless in, all, in a lot of ways because we had tried and we had tried and we had tried. Um, but then in the Lord's perfect timing and in his care and provision for us, he provided us with an absolutely incredible house to rent. All right, 4,000 square foot house uh, that was absolutely beautiful and was just perfect for our family and perfect for our ministry, much better than what we had been trying to buy. And he graciously allowed to rent that house for much cheaper than we should have. And, and we stayed in that house for about two years. And then um, towards the end of that two years, uh, the owner of that house just kind of unexpectedly uh, needed to sell the house. And so we were on the clock again, uh, knowing that we were going to have to get out in a short amount of time. So we started to try to look to, to buy a house again. And uh, again, we tried to buy several different houses. And man, each time it just fell through, it fell through, it fell through. 
And uh, there was one house in particular. It was kind of in the 11th hour. It was like our last week to be able to buy a house and get out of the one we were in and get into that one um, before the deadline. And uh, it came on the market on a Sunday. And we went and looked at it the next day on a Monday with our realtor. And as we walked around, uh, our realtor said, this is the, the perfect house for you guys. This is the best house we have seen in years now for, for you guys. And so uh, we put an offer in on, on that house. Uh, we agreed we loved the house. And uh, we kind of went back and forth a few times. And then um, we just decided with a deadline that was uh, kind of hanging over our heads and um, just how much we loved the house, we, we decided just to offer full price on the house. All right? And we kind of went, all right, it's over, it's over. But they decided to reject the offer and they took it off the market, all right, and decided to rent the house instead. And and man, I can still remember um, sitting over here in this section that Sunday morning and my wife and I, we were just, we we were broken over it. Just hoping that the conclusion had finally come to an end and, and left again kind of in a um, unknown, uh, kind of what seemed like a, a hopeless spot. And we were encouraged, of course, by uh, the worship and the preaching of the word here, reminded who God is and his control and his plan and that he is good. And so we pressed on and just uh, a few days after that, Man, we were offered the opportunity to, to rent another house, okay? But this time it, it wasn't 4,000 square feet. Um, it was 5,000 square feet, all right? It was a half million dollar home that was offered to us to rent. Again, uh, just graciously much less uh, to pay for it than, than we should have been able to pay for it. And so uh, we decided to move into this house um, with uh, the fact knowing that the owners were trying to sell that house as well, all right? You can't make this stuff up, people. I mean, is this not crazy. And so we move into this house, uh, not knowing how long we're going to be able to live there. And so we're continually looking for houses in the process as well. Um, and about seven months pass. Okay. And, uh, that same house that we had offered full price on came back on the market. And so uh, we went and looked at it the next day. And uh, just through those months, we had kind of uh, changed some, some priorities and things. And, and we were in a, a much lower price range than we were before. And so we decided we would just go look at it and make kind of a lower offer and just see how they responded. And so uh, we made a lower offer on the house. They basically came back at full price. And so we decided it was time for us to, to be done with it and uh, just step away. And again, um, it, was, it was hard. And... Uh, we were left in a very uncertain spot. And so um, a few months went by, and uh, actually it was about a month and a half, and our realtor called us back, and she said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what's that? And she said, that same house, um, the deal fell through, and it has come back on the market, all right? And this time, it is owned by a relocation company. And so there's a good chance that you'll be able to buy that house for much less than you had offered before. So we're like, oh, goodness. I mean, would this not be a great episode of House Hunters? You know what I'm saying? So we talk about it and we pray about it. And, and again, we're trying to just be in a lower price range now. And, and uh, as I was talking to Brittany, my wife, about it, she said, I've been praying about it. And I just feel like if we just had 5000 more dollars... I would be ready to move forward with it. And me, uh, being the godly man that I am, I said, babe, how in the world are we going to get 5,000 more dollars? Right? <laughs> and uh, she said, I don't know. Uh, let's continue to pray about it. And, and crazily, just a few days after that, um, our landlord, the people that, that own the house, um, they called me and they said, hey, we're thinking about... Um, changing and trying to sell the house for sale by owner. Would you be willing to show the house for us um, for 1% commission of the sale? Now, I don't know how good you are at math, but 1% of 500,000 is $5,000, right? And so, boom, there you go. And so we were kind of taken aback by that. And um, 
wondering if that was the Lord um, calling us to move forward with it all. And, and so the money wasn't guaranteed at that point. And so we continued to talk about it and pray about it. Um, just a few weeks after that, our realtor called me again. I have a good relationship with my realtor. We're really close. If you can't tell, all right? And so she was a huge blessing. And uh, she calls back again and she says, you're not going to believe this. And I said, well, by this time I might actually. And uh, she said, Illinois just approved a grant. And if you have not been a homeowner in Illinois for the last three years, which we were unable to be, although we tried many times, um, you can get a grant for $7,500 that goes towards your down payment. And so with that, we decided, okay, let's move forward with this. And so uh, we, for the third time, uh, made an offer on this house, and it went back and forth again a few times. And on the seventh offer that we made on this house, in over a year, on three different occasions, uh, they finally accepted our offer. And with the lower offer um, and the $7,500 in grant money, and then the house that we were living in, just a few days after that, went under contract, and we got that commission as well. Um, and you put all that together, and we were able to buy that house for nearly $40,000 less than we had originally offered over a year ago. And so, amen, praise God, absolutely, absolutely. And so, man, throughout that process, there are many times um, where we began um, to just wonder and uh, times where we began to just feel beaten by the waves and, and feeling kind of that fear rising up. And, and time after time, uh, we tried to encourage one another uh, to remember that, that God, He knows. He can do all things. He will care for us. He will provide for us. And He proved that time and time and time again. And the same is true for you, regardless of your situation and regardless of your circumstances. And so, uh, we need not be afraid because Jesus is the Almighty Son of God. All right. Point two, and it's going to be much faster. All right. Do not be afraid. Okay. Point two. Let's keep. We're going to move a little faster here and wrap this up. And so secondly, we see um, our need to focus on Jesus, not our problem, and worship him in the storm. Focus on Jesus and not our problem and worship him in the storm. Look at verse 28 through verse uh, 31 with me. Follow along. It says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, uh, with the tenderness and compassion of a father to a son, he simply said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and miraculously came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so here what we have at the end of the last paragraph is Jesus saying to the disciples, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am here. And Peter, being the ever bold and passionate disciple that he was, he embraced Jesus' words and he stands up and he gets out of the boat fully focused on Jesus with this huge faith. And miraculously, he's able to walk towards Jesus. But then his focus shifts from Christ to the storm. And we see that in his fear, he begins to sink. All right? And so originally, as he got out of the boat, man, his faith was big. And so therefore, his fear was small. But then he loses focus, and he begins to focus on the storm as well. And what happens when he focuses on the storm or the problem? His faith becomes small, and his fear becomes huge. And the absolute same thing is true for you and I. And when we focus on Christ, man, our faith will continue to grow and grow and our fear will be small and smaller. That when we begin to focus on the storms and the problems and and the trials in our life, our faith will become smaller and our fear will become bigger. And so how do we battle these fears? How do we keep ourselves from focusing on the storm and focusing on Jesus instead? Uh, We follow the example of Peter, right? Um, As Peter is sinking, he simply cries out, Lord, save me. 
Lord, save me. And so when we find ourselves focusing on the storm uh, instead, when we find ourselves sinking in our fears and in our troubles, man, we need to cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, give me your grace and mercy. Help me to hold on to what is true rather than simply what I'm feeling. All right? And that's kind of the other key to focusing on Christ rather than the storm. It's to continually speak the truth to ourselves rather than simply allowing ourselves to be ruled by how we feel. We speak the truth to ourselves. And what do we say to ourselves? It's, it's not, I can tell you, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. All right? That's not it at all. We speak the truth to ourselves. We speak the truth that we have heard from this passage that Jesus... He knows all. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus can do all things. Jesus will care and provide and protect you. And as we hold on to the truth, it will allow our faith to grow bigger and our fear to decrease. It's really exactly what we see happen with the disciples as we wrap up the passage. In verse 32, it says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It was the final exclamation point to show Uh, that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And then in verse 33, it says, And those in the boat, they worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are of the same essence of God. Therefore saying, Truly you are God. And so as the disciples realize the truth of who Jesus was and what he can do for them, uh, they were no longer afraid. And in faith, they worshipped him. So, again, uh, I just ask you this morning, um, what's the storm in your life? Um, what's the storm in your life that's, that's trying to um, remove your focus from Jesus and, and put your focus uh, on the waves and the wind instead? Um, what's bringing you fear? What's bringing you worry? What's causing you to sink? Um, I realize uh, that there are a lot of storms in life. Um, Some of y'all may be going through far greater things than I've talked about this morning. Uh, Fear of the future. Uh, Maybe it's fear uh, of a financial situation, a fear of family situation, a fear of a a job situation or a health situation. Um, But what I can tell you from the Word of God is regardless of how dark the night is and regardless of how severe the storm is and regardless of how frail your ship may be right now, you have no reason to fear because Jesus is on the mountainside and He is lifting you up in prayer to the Father and He knows exactly where you are and He will use the storm to come to you and meet your every need. May we all respond in faith and focus on Jesus and worship Him in the storm. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we we praise you for, um, Lord, your, your care for us, your concern for us. Um, Lord, we praise you for your provision for us. Uh, Lord, we praise you most for your love that was displayed for us on the cross and how you met our deepest need in Christ through his death and resurrection, allowing us to be redeemed from our sin and renewed and made right with you. So Lord, may we be in awe of who you are, of how you love us, of what you've done for us. And Lord, may we trust you in the storms. May we know that you are good. May we not live by how we feel, but may we trust in what we know is true. May we keep our focus on you. May you give us the grace to do so. And may you help us not to fear the war and not to fear the storm. But Lord, may we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.